0: Okay, so Luke chapter 9 Good to be back in Luke again And it's entitled The Cost of Following Jesus As they were walking along the road A man said to him I'll follow you wherever you go Jesus replied Foxes have dens and birds have nests But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head He said to another man Follow me But he replied After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No. You will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you, sorry, whoever rejects me, But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for all this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, And no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but do not see it. And to hear what you hear, but do not hear it.
1: Meredith, good morning everyone. Good to see you all today on this lovely sunny day. We're going to start with verse 51. Uh, we didn't have it read, but that's fine, we'll, we'll read it. It's only just before that section. But this, week in, this weekend sorry, has been a big weekend of winning and losing. Um, Richmond certainly had the upper hand, always, uh, yesterday when greater Western Sydney seemed to have lost focus right from the first siren. But clarity, focus, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, After all, losing our focus can be disastrous. There's this uh, thing called sudden wealth syndrome, whereby those who suddenly come into contact with a large sum of money, like millions of dollars in an instant, um, often lose focus. They're giddy with excitement and they end up losing more than just the money, but their relationships break down. Uh, reckless spending uh, ruins uh, their life through addiction, through criminal records, through illegal habits. And it just plagues them for decades into the future. They've lost focus through this massive sudden injection of cash. There's even this growing movement among tech families, high-tech families, those that actually create the apps, the software, the phones, the technology that we use all day, whereby they're actively reducing their screen time for themselves and their families so that they can, funnily enough, stay more focused, more connected to each other. Some of the more prestigious schools around the world are even offering technology-free curriculums whereby there is no technology at all for their high school years. It's simply pen, paper, and a book. The wealthier and now, uh, affluence is now saying that technology is not as good as what maybe it was. But, but I say all this as a way of introduction because we, as, as we start a new series in the Gospel of Luke now, what's going to frame the 10 chapters, 9 to 19, and nine weeks of sermons, is found in the beginning of Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where we read this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out, for Jerusalem. And we have to come to terms with what it means for Jesus to resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. Because if we miss that, we'll miss here all that comes next. Because the shift that takes place in Luke 9:51 all the way to chapter 19 is centered around as Jeff introduced for us, what does it look like to follow the way of Jesus? To be focused on Jesus who himself resolved to go to Jerusalem. You see, the way of Jesus is a journey that challenges our priorities, our our ideas, our perception of what life can be. He really does ask a lot from us. But But his way is not something we can negotiate with. But for all that Jesus asks, there is joy, there is purpose, determination, and focus. And as we walk the same path that Jesus himself walked, with us and before us. So the question today, and and it will overhang every uh, sermon for the next nine weeks, is where is your focus? Perhaps it's time to refocus yourself on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Maybe you're here and you've never really ever resolved to focus on Jesus, follow his way. Well, Maybe today you'll consider those claims. What does it mean to follow and focus and be resolved to set my life upon Jesus for the first time? So we're hitting Luke's gospel, and we're really coming into the middle of it. So just spend a few moments with me uh, getting our head in the right frame of mind uh, as we, we're we starting in chapter 9. So Luke is one of the four gospels, and it's the longest of them. And he gives, and all the gospels give us, a biological, biological, biographical sketch of Jesus' life. Luke wrote this gospel and the book of Acts in AD 62 and 63, respectively, 30 years after Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven. Luke, the author of this book, was formally educated. He was a doctor, and he spent time with the same Paul who wrote Galatians, traveling on the mission field with him, and he was smart, very smart and he wasn't a jew and so when you read luke's gospel he fills in all these background details bits of information that a non-jew like you and me really find helpful to grasp the culture the times who what was going on in the in jesus day so we can understand it better but that doesn't mean luke is writing some essay or research paper he's actually writing with a heart for people So, look at the very start of Luke's Gospel. I myself, this is Luke talking now, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Then I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Isn't that great? He's he's writing to one person, Theophilus, excellent Theophilus, mind you, who's a recent convert to Christianity, and Luke spends hours and hours pouring through all the information, all the data, compiling the material on Jesus' life, sticks it together in this thing called the Gospel of Luke, shoots it off to Theophilus and says, I hope your faith is so encouraged that you'll go into Monday morning, Theophilus, encouraged and strengthened by this letter I've written to you. Now, if you were to read the Gospel of Luke in one sitting, it takes about two hours. Uh, if, if you were to do it 15, 20 minutes a day, you can get it done in a week. So you could read the Gospel of Luke every, in nine times by the time we get through our sermon series. So why not try that? But Theophilus gets this letter, and then Acts comes soon after. He writes to strengthen his faith. And today, we have copies of that letter. The original writings have survived, or the copies of them, I should say. And on your screen is what they call Papyrus 75. And this is one of the manuscripts that contains almost all of Luke and part of John as well. It's dated to AD 200. And so we're going to walk with Jesus through the last six months of his life in these nine chapters. As he heads Jerusalem to die, to rise, to ascend. So let's begin at 951. Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. He's up north, past Samaria at the top, and he's going to go down through that village into Jerusalem. What he does is he sends some messengers out. We read in verse 52, he sent messengers who went on ahead into into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But in 53, the people did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem 54 when the disciples james and john saw this they said lord do you want us to call fire down from heaven it's brilliant destroying them but jesus turned and rebuked them and then his disciples and him turned and went to another village so jesus reception doesn't go to plan the samaritans don't want him there and the disciples in this kind of moment of holy zeal, just want to burn them to death because that's what you do, I guess. But the Samaritans are this breakaway group of Jews from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, who didn't settle in Jerusalem. They decided to stay up north a bit and in the capital, they made a temple. Mount Gerzaman is where the, the, the temple they worship God is. They have the same origin of faith, but, but they say you've got to go up north to worship God at this place, whereas the Jews, the, the southern kingdom of Judea, said no, it's actually in Jerusalem. And so this caused a rift Um, There was tension between the two groups, separation, disdain between them. But Jesus doesn't feel that way about these people. After all, he's the new David. He's gathering God's people together, and that means he's going to travel into Samaria to get them. And then in Acts 1 verse 18, Luke says on the lips of Jesus, go into Samaria to proclaim the gospel. But right now, they get there, and these Samaritans don't want Jesus to stick around because his face is set towards something else. His face is towards Jerusalem, not Gerzeman. Jesus caused offense because he came and didn't fit the picture that they wanted him to be. He's not doing what they think he should do. He's not being who they think he should be. And as we said, James and John have this intense desire to to kill them through fire from heaven but Jesus very gently just says guys ease up, hold on a minute Jesus doesn't rebuke the city he rebukes his disciples see what Jesus wants to do is form a new community of followers of God where the outsiders are welcome, not destroyed and the heart we should have for the outsider is not that God's fire would fall from heaven but that God's grace would awaken them to Jesus who came from heaven. The way Luke writes this when he set his face to Jerusalem with all resolve is not just to look to the cross, but you notice it looks towards the ascension, to look beyond the suffering and to the glory that comes afterwards. You see, Jerusalem is not only the place where Jesus dies, it's the place where he will ascend in which the gospel will then go forth into the rest of the world. And That matters. that matters because a dead Jesus can't save anyone. A dead Jesus cannot intercede for you and me right now before God the Father in heaven. A dead Jesus cannot return, bringing in the kingdom of God, redeeming those waiting for him, where he will judge the living and the dead. A dead Jesus can't send the Holy Spirit. A dead Jesus is not the king over all kings. A dead Jesus is not immortal or eternal or unchanging. A dead Jesus is not God. And so the witness of the New Testament authors that we very clearly say today that Jesus is alive, who physically rose from the dead and lifted up into heaven where he sits now reigning as the King of King, Lord of Lords, calling people to faith and belief in him. And on that the ascension, the entire Christian faith rests. Yes, the cross is in Jerusalem, but the cross was not the end, you see. And and in the same way the Samaritans didn't want Jesus to stick around, we don't want, if we're honest, Jesus with a face towards Jerusalem either. We want Jesus that has his face towards us. To pander to our ideas, goals, needs, wants, desires. Who will agree with me? But the best news in the world is that Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem. Jesus comes and calls us to follow him so that we too will be resolved to go in a new direction with a new focus. Jesus resolved to set his face to Jerusalem. Will I resolve to set my face to him? And so they leave the village. And Luke picks up the story. And they're going along the road to this other village. And we meet three unnamed people. And all of them want to follow Jesus. Isn't that great? But they all have a condition. That they want Jesus to meet first. I'll follow you, Jesus, if, but, maybe. I wonder how many people have said this in verse 57. Oh, there you go. There's our walking along. I will follow you wherever you go. Now, there's nothing wrong with what he says. He just hasn't thought it through. After all, Jesus says foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If you're going to follow Jesus, you better be prepared to forego the same securities, the same comforts that you have in life. Are you ready to go there? Are you ready to go to the place where you have to trust God, not knowing what the future will hold? Are you ready to follow the Jesus who himself gave up the security and comfort of heaven and the glory of being with God, put it aside and came to earth, not to take up power, but to actually serve? Are you ready to give up anything that you hold to as dear And want to claim as easy in this life to follow the way of Jesus, which may not look the way that you first thought it would be. I will follow you wherever you go. Well, that's very easy to say. But have you really thought through the implication? What's been hard this week is (laughs) each time I get to this passage, you're left wrecked on the floor. If you hear these words of Jesus, we're going to get to the end of the sermon, and there is nothing I'm going to say to you at the end, except, where's your focus? Because if the Word of God is doing what God said it would do, I'm sure as we look at all these characters, each of you will, will, will feel the pressure that God is putting on you, and to ask the question, where is your focus? And then we get to verse 59, and really it's not any better, um, He says to another man, follow me. So Jesus is asking him to follow him. And the the man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And then we have one of the most insensitive, harsh, misfocused, inhumane statements Jesus could ever say at first glance. Let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, I do not think that Jesus is asking him or us to abandon our family responsibility here. Something else is going on for that person. Now, for a Jew, the, 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 the duty of burial took place, or precedence, sorry, over pretty much everything else in life. Any cultural or religious expectation to have someone in palliative care was a huge deal. You would forgo circumcision. We remember Galatians, that was a pretty big deal. But if someone was, was to bury them, you would forgo that. You would forgo going to the temple, the atonement, the sac- all that stuff. You would forgo and say, no, I've got this to do." And everyone would say, well, fair enough. What this man is doing is to say to Jesus, my situation is, is more important than life before you. Jesus, well, what's going on? With all the crazy, with all the busy, I just haven't got space to think about following you the way you would want me to. And the best I can do is say, I'll put you there after these things. I'll get to you once I'm done with this. So it's a matter of priorities, you see. It's not being uncaring. But then you say, that smacks of harshness, too. I mean, it's not our family, a priority. You mean to say, what if with my circumstances, with my parents who are sick, I have to look after them? And you're saying, I can't do that. Or the family who's found out of the child with a disability or sickness. And so my whole world is spinning. Well, that's actually not the issue here. Jesus is not prescribing how to care for your family. He's describing this man's barrier in following him. Yours will probably be something else. You'll have your own reason why this and that must take priority over Jesus and the kingdom of God and the proclaiming of the kingdom of God, and I know I have mine. You see, you can and you should be a disciple while looking after your family. In fact, being a disciple of Jesus will shape how you care for people in a way that is ludicrously uncommon to everyone else. The way of Jesus will reorder your priorities in such a way that you will care for others joyfully and gladly all for the sake of the kingdom of God all while doing what Jesus says, proclaiming the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is saying is that the proclamation of the kingdom to spiritually dead people is what is needed, and you do that as a follower of him. You see, the trouble with this man in this instance is that what was blocking the pursuit of the kingdom of God and postponing its start was that. To so care for your family, yes, do it as a disciple. Go into your sphere of life, whatever that is, and proclaim the kingdom of God but you see, sometimes Jesus says things that shock us and, and shake us to the core, they, that he's supposed to wake us up to the urgency, to the reality of the kingdom of God coming to us. It's as if a semi trailer's is roared down your street at 3 a.m., 50 tons, packed on the back, and you wake up suddenly. And that is how the words of Jesus sometimes are meant to be heard. And the question is, where is your focus? And that flows into the next encounter in 61 and 62, um, where Jesus, again, he hits you for a six. He denies a perfectly reasonable request. Jesus, I'll follow you. Can I just have 15 minutes to have a cup of coffee with mum and dad, say goodbye, give them a hug, and then I'll be there. Can you do that? That's okay, isn't it, surely? Well, No. In the same way that Jesus looked forward to Jerusalem with resolve without looking back or to the side, and just as shocking as the previous two conversations, Jesus challenges us not to look back either. Now, the way of Jesus is not being an arrogant jerk to your family. That's not the point of these conversations. It's to shake up the notion that following Jesus is about negotiating with him on the terms, on the conditions, on what's involved. You see in this instance, the initial following is going to be let, met with a looking back to the life this person once had, to what's been missed out. Now, you find a tension here. Often, as a follower of Jesus, you have moments, well, I've had them, when you look back to what could have been or what you've missed out on, all for the sake of God, isn't worth it, what's going on? And and this picture, Jesus says, is actually, it's like you're plowing a field. And in Jesus' day, if you're going to plow a field with a straight line, you had to look forward. And the moment you turned away, you just went wonky. And the way of Jesus, you see, reorders our priorities, our focus, our comforts. And the challenge to think through is to consider it's a way up. Jesus knows there's going to have to be allegiances undone, reworked for each person. And each one of these three people, Jesus knows the heart issue, the barrier for them coming into the kingdom. He's not full of secrets. Jesus does not say to you, ha ha, surprise, you didn't realize it was going to be like this. Jesus is actually up front right at the beginning. It's not always easy. You see, if the way of Jesus is the ultimate priority, that will inform and shape how you go about every other priority in your life. And so God often brings us to a fork, a junction in our life by which it becomes necessary to think through. Will I choose comfort or convention or customs or Jesus? And just as Jesus set his face to Jerusalem in 951, we leave chapter 9 with three people whose face is not set towards Jesus. And the question still is, where is your focus? And as we hit chapter 10, some of the parallels of what's gone before are are, are quite obvious. In a similar way that Jesus sent disciples into the Samaritan village, Jesus sends out 72, now guaranteeing that the harvest is ready and for them to reap new followers of him. And just as Jesus faced rejection in the Samaritan village, so they will as well. He says in verse 3, Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now that's an unfair balance. A wolf will eat a lamb. They have big teeth. They're stronger. They're faster. They're more powerful. And Jesus says, You're a lamb. Go in the wolves. Sign up for that mission. You know, there's this wonderful verse in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, and Isaiah sees a vision of God, and the fire comes out, the coal comes out, and he's clean, and, and then God says, Isaiah, uh, he says, sorry, he says, who's going to go for me? To my people, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And And Isaiah says, oh, I'll do it. And then we hear that wonderfully encouraging thing. Who will go? And then do you know what God says after that, in Isaiah 6? Mm, I've made their hearts dull. They're not going to hear you. They're not going to pay attention to you. They're not going to listen to me through you. So go. Proclaim my words to them. Not the success you really want to have. It doesn't uplift you, does it not? But consider that Jesus is the good shepherd. And he lays his life for his sheep. And in the same vein as Jesus being led to slaughter, we follow the footsteps of our Savior. Suffer, being treated unfairly. Be not surprised, Peter writes. It's actually being part of following the way of Jesus. How do you feel about that? Go on mission. Expect to be misunderstood. But actually, there's a harvest too. We're not to stir up trouble like the disciples wanting to call fire from heaven. We have a message that is given from the King of Kings, an invitation that he has come near. Follow him. Proclaim that message, but it is a message that hurts for us as we will suffer, lambs amongst wolves, but also it's a message of judgment for those who reject it. And the cities that they were traveling in at this time, verses 12 to 15, the tale of Sodom and Gomorrah was, was bedtime story reading for kids. Like this was one of those great, you know, Marvel Avengers of the first century type Pictures, it's not the first century, but you know, kids would have heard it and read it, they knew it. Sodom and Gomorrah, what did it mean? Evil, wickedness, God's judgment on them when He destroyed them with fire from heaven, and when Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt. You see, what Jesus is saying is that to reject Him is to face a day when the kingdom of God will collide with yours, not graciously inviting you in to repent and mercifully offering you forgiveness, but when the fire that James and John wanted to call down actually comes down on your head and they return it was a short trip it wasn't a long journey they returned and they're really happy jesus it was brilliant Do you know jesus that in your name demons disappeared we healed people it was incredible and jesus says oh i gave you that authority Then it gets even bigger than they can imagine. The kingdom of God coming through their preaching into the cities. It caused a massive beating against Satan. Jesus, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Whatever that means, was it physically? Whatever. There's a a rift that has been caused in the spiritual world at that moment. Leon Morris, Australian scholar, says to the casual observer, all that happened was a few vagabond preachers went in and said, Jesus is coming. Healed a few sick folk. But in that gospel triumph, Satan suffered a noble defeat. And then Jesus increases the scope even more. And in verse 19, he says, nothing will hurt you. Snakes and scorpions, in my name, they're nothing. Just when you think there is mind-blowing power to be gained in the kingdom of God, Jesus then kind of sucks it back up and says, wait a minute. Actually, guys... The way is not about gaining power, but about giving it up to serve others. What's amazing, disciples, 72, Trinity Grove, is not that the spirits are subject to you, but that your name is written in heaven. That Jesus would love you, not by whispering over a candlelit dinner, but by dying. By writing your name with his blood in the heavenly places, securing for all eternity your safety, your deliverance into God's presence. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is a greater joy than any authority you could ever have. And so once again, Jesus calls us to fix our face on him. As you do ministry, as you follow the way of Jesus, there will be amazing, wonderful things. And that's good. Jesus does not say, oh, that's bad. But don't lose focus on what matters. And then finally, in verse 21 to 24, Jesus rejoices. At that time, Jesus, full of, the, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. Father. Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. Joy is a really colorless concept of what Jesus feels. Uh, It's exceedingly, abundantly thrilled, overflowing with joy. Put some more superlatives on there and you'll get a picture of how, just a little bit how he felt. And it's one of the only two places in the Gospels where we read Jesus actually rejoices. And it's a Trinitarian rejoicing too. Father, Son, Spirit, all involved. What are they rejoicing in? This free, this, this electing love of God in revealing himself to those who will follow him. You see, Jesus sits there and he sees God's saving grace... As as his disciples are announcing the kingdom of God, people unfollowing their own way, following, subscribing to him, because God is awakening them to the beauty, the truth of Jesus. And Jesus sits there and he smiles. And he rejoices. And that's just marvelous. He finds joy in God working through you and me as we proclaim the gospel. Did you know that you are loved and you are cherished? not in a romantic love kind of way, but in a real deep son of God, creator, sustainer of all things, king of kings, actually, I think you're pretty amazing. And you're going to go and proclaim my my gospel. And all your labors, no matter how praiseless this life is, because you're a mixed of wolves, no matter how praiseless, I know and I'm thrilled that you are proclaiming the kingdom of God. No matter what happens, I love you to bits, Jesus says. And Satan has fallen and he will continue to fall as the name of Jesus is proclaimed. And Jesus rejoices in that. So then, where does that leave us today? So, So maybe Jesus is asking you, refocusing you to set the course of your life on him as he looked to Jerusalem, the place of his death, resurrection, ascension, as the not yet of that event so fixed his gaze that it drove him in the here and now, maybe you need to have your life turned towards him in all the turmoil of your week, in all the uncertainty of the future, in all the waiting, whatever that may be, is your gaze set on the one who is? The one who walks with resolve with confidence, determination, into the future, knowing full well what awaits. Is, is he the one you're trusting? Is he your focus? Maybe this week you've been distracted and disoriented. You've had a week filled with sinful behaviours. Your desires are just burning for things that you know I should not follow as a follower of Christ. There's so much busy, there's so much burden, you're frazzled. And you're saying, I'll follow you, Jesus, but let me sort this out first. Let me get on top of my work week. Let me get on top of the family stuff. Let me come to you when it's just less stressful, when there's no forks in the road, when the path is smooth and like the people that came with Jesus on the road. Maybe Jesus is calling you, and you're making excuses for why I shouldn't follow him. May I ask gently that you think about the claims that Jesus makes, that if they're true, that if Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the thing that's going to matter. Because a well-ordered life without Jesus is still no life at all. They maybe have been following the way of Jesus for some time. And you're like the disciples who were sent out. You are rejoicing. You're celebrating. Life is wonderful. All the little wins, you see. But the danger is you've started to celebrate the wrong wins. In all the joys, what's been lost is your true joy, your true focus, and maybe you need to be redirected back on your own name written in heaven and not all that other stuff. Maybe you're thinking before Jesus My life was like this, and now my life's like this. And if I'd have done things differently, I'd be here, not here, and my bank account would look a little bit nicer, and my job would be a little bit more easier, and my family wouldn't have to do what they're doing to survive. And, And maybe you're looking back. You've hurt the plow, and you've started to go wonky. And the good news is that Jesus is still worth it. Yes, after all those years. Yes, after all that change. But it's because he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And because he went there, like a sheep silent before it's being slaughtered, went to the cross, he is able to reset, refocus, and credit to you his perfect righteousness. His perfect obedience. Because you will always find more and more grace with Jesus. And the more we set our face upon him, the more we become like this glorious new image that God is making in you. And yes, Jesus asks a lot. But it was for a lot that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And so the way of Jesus is this continual resolving, determining, focusing our gaze upon the Savior. So then, where is your focus? Let's go to Monday. Let's have afternoon tea, helping one another to fix our resolve upon him. Let's pray, and then we'll worship our God through song. Jesus, you fixed your face to go to the cross, to die, to rise. And we just want to say thank you. Thank you, Father, that you sent your son while we were still sinners and far away from you to do that, that you've given us the focus in life, to live as a follower of you. Lord, as we face the hard things of this week, help us to be in a community now that will spur one another on to love, to good works, to faithfulness. Father, may you cause us now to repent of our sin in this week. Father, may we come and humble ourselves before you to find the grace we need. And Father, give each of us a greater understanding and appreciation of your mercy and your love towards us as your children. Amen.